From the ACLU, this is At Liberty. I'm Amber Hikes, your host for this month. This week, we're bringing you a story about an upcoming Supreme Court case, FBI versus Fasaga, set to be argued on November 8th. This case will have big implications on the ability for private citizens who have been wrongfully surveilled by the U.S. government to seek redress for the infringement on their personal privacy and the damages associated. There's a lot to dig into here, both about the case itself and also about the backdrop of the case, the 20th anniversary of the Patriot Act, an act that made it easier for Muslim Americans to be surveilled after 9-11. But first, a story from our client, Sheikh Yasser Fasaga. After 9-11, the FBI did dispatch a big number of informants in different Islamic centers, and especially in the Southern California area in Orange County, where I used to be the imam at the Orange County Islamic Foundation. So the FBI brought in Craig Montiel to spy on the local Islamic centers in the area. Craig Montiel a young fitness trainer walked into the Orange County Islamic Foundation looking to join the Muslim community. Sheikh Fazaga welcomed him with open arms. But what Sheikh Fazaga didn't know and couldn't know was that this trainer was in fact hired by the FBI to spy on the Sheikh and his community. The story that he gave is he comes from a Lebanese-Syrian background and, and somehow, you know, he's just finding out more about his Islamic roots and he is joining the community again. In the meantime, he's also being trained, as we later found out, by the FBI, using Arabic words, perfecting his prayers, the movements in prayers. And what happened is that he came into the center and took his shahada. Shahada is a public uh, proclamation of faith that when people become Muslims, you know, they come and they do it. It's not a requirement, but it is a way of a person joining the community so that we are aware of who they are, so that their rights can be met as Muslims. So he comes in, and very typical of our Muslim community, the minute a person takes the shahada, people praise God, and then that person is received literally with hugs. You go up to that person, you hug them three times, and you welcome them You welcome them to the community. You get their number, you give them your number, you invite them over because these are the newest members of our community. The community trusted Craig Montiel, all while he was gathering intel on them. They bonded with him, the young people in particular, interested in his background in fitness. Here's the thing. To many people, the place of worship is not just a place of worship. It is literally their second family. And the most important element in any healthy human relationship is trust. Now, what was particularly hurtful about that case is that everything there was orchestrated by the government. It was orchestrated by the FBI. Throughout his spying, as he gained trust, Craig became more extremist, attempting to attract those with radical beliefs. He'd speak about having access to weapons. He'd forget his keys in the mosque offices so he could record conversations. He even had sex with Muslim women to get more information. His effort was to find targets and, well, make them guilty. I really believe what happened is 
the FBI has literally conceptualized and offered people a frame, a picture that we are working hard in getting all these terrorists. And if you do not find them, create them. And they just went on because they really wanted to justify the story that they have told. So I think that it was literally about not finding terrorists, so let's create some in order to justify what we are doing. In 2009, Craig's information became the centerpiece of an FBI case against an Afghan immigrant. Under the weight of his guilt, Craig went to the press, telling them who he was and how the FBI had sent him to spy on the community. He said he'd used blackmail to get the evidence used in the case, and the charges were dropped. At that Uh point, you say, look, these are not people who are searching for the truth. These are not people who are looking forward to making a real partnership with the community. These are people who have orchestrated a story, and they need to back up their story, even if it means victimizing innocent community members. This is Uh what the FBI did. Sheikh Fasaga joined with two other Muslim community members and decided to sue the FBI for the damage done to their community. I've always, you know, been taught that no good is good if it's only good for you. The best of goods are shared goods. What good is your health if the people around you are not healthy? It further enhances your own health that the people around you be healthy. What good is your freedom If the people around you are not free, it further enhances your own freedom that the people around you be healthy as well. So this is really not about the Muslims, the minorities. This is about all of us. When we protect somebody else's rights, by virtue, we are also protecting our own rights as well. And had it not been for the support that I have gotten, it would have been very difficult. The other thing also is you can't really be preaching the importance of standing up for what is right without you being willing to also be that person that is willing to lead the way. So we've decided that, you know, This has to come to an end. This is illegal. It is unethical. It is unbecoming. It is un-American. And somebody needs to say, look, this is wrong. My name is on the lawsuit, but I represent a lot of people. My story is the story of many people out there. Sheikh Fasaga is right. His story is the story of so many Black and Brown Americans who have been targeted and surveilled. I spoke with Patrick Toomey, senior staff attorney at the ACLU's National Security Project, to learn more about the case, the history of government surveillance, and how this surveillance has disproportionately impacted Muslim Americans and Americans of color. So we just heard from Sheikh Fasaga. Can you tell us, does his experience sound familiar to you? And what does Sheikh Fasaga's experience illustrate about the greater problem of surveillance of marginalized communities in America? The types of experiences that Sheikh Fasaga has described have been incredibly common and incredibly devastating, especially in the two decades since 9-11 in the United States. The feeling of fear, the feeling of scrutiny, the feeling of being profiled, 
on the basis of one's religion. All of those things have been felt across Muslim communities in the United States uh, when people have been subjected to disproportionate scrutiny based on what they believe. And the effects of that are very real. The feeling of the FBI or the government agencies sending informants into some of our most cherished sacred spaces, like the mosques that were subject to surveillance in this case, leads to a profound feeling of both chill, not knowing who you can trust, not knowing what you can say without it being distorted in some way by the government. And that affects the bonds that these spaces are designed to really encourage and support. One of the things that the plaintiffs describe in this case is how their mosques are supposed to be sanctuaries and places to welcome strangers. And when the government sends informants into mosques, it creates a a feeling, a doubt about newcomers to these spaces that are supposed to be sanctuaries. And so it turns them into spaces where people don't feel safe, they don't feel at ease, they don't feel comfortable. And I think that is one of the things about this story that really resonates. It's so interesting, this connection you're making between the way that this kind of heightened discriminatory surveillance can impact a person's ability to feel safe in their community, to feel safe within their religion, but also even their ability to be able to build community. We now have a case that's set to appear in front of the Supreme Court that really shines a spotlight on the government's most secret programs. Can you give us a little bit of historical context? How did this case come about? That's right. So today we are 20 years out from 9-11 and also 20 years out from the passage of the Patriot Act, which ushered in a new era of mass surveillance in this country. And after 9-11, the FBI and other government intelligence agencies took a dramatic set of steps to place Muslim Americans under surveillance and under really intense government scrutiny. And that manifested itself in a number of different ways. What happened in this case is that the FBI recruited an an informant and sent the informant into a number of mosques in Southern California enlisted him to pose as a Muslim convert and to attempt to build connections and in the course of building those connections, gather information about the people who worshipped at these mosques, the people who went there to pray, the people who went to these mosques to find community and to practice their religious beliefs. And this experience that these mosques and the plaintiffs in the case have described are not at all unique. Uh, There were similar efforts in New York City by the New York Police Department to enlist informants, to gather information, not just in mosques, but also in Muslim student associations on campuses. And so these types of information gathering efforts were very, very widespread. Wow. So what is the question that's before the court with this particular case? So the question that's coming up before the Supreme Court in just a couple weeks focuses on the government's ability 
to thwart lawsuits like this one, which is about vindicating the right to religious freedom when the government invokes something called the state secrets privilege, which is when the government comes into a case or is sued in a case and says that there is evidence or information at issue that it believes, if disclosed, would harm national security. And the government has made that assertion with respect to some of the claims and evidence in this case. But this case, as we've been talking about, is also about surveillance and about spying. And the potential for abuse of surveillance and abuse of spying is a question that that Congress closely considered in the 1970s after a series of spying scandals in this country. And so the key question in this case, or one of the key questions, is the extent to which a law that Congress passed in the 1970s called the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act takes precedence or supersedes this state secrets privilege that I just mentioned. And the way in which that law, which says courts should review sensitive evidence behind closed doors in order to decide whether surveillance was lawful. So the government is coming into this case and saying the claims need to be dismissed because the evidence is sensitive on national security grounds. And one of the arguments in the case is that no, Congress passed a law that addressed this problem of illegal surveillance when it saw how those authorities could be abused. And it set up a special process that it wanted courts to use to resolve claims where plaintiffs were coming into court and saying that they had been spied on illegally and seeking redress in court for that. Thank you for bringing up this state secrets privilege. My understanding is that it has been frequently abused by the U.S. government to try to shut down some of these lawsuits that come up from survivors of torture and often to try to end litigation against unlawful government surveillance. Is, is, is that the case? Is that what we've seen in the past? That's exactly right. Especially in the decades after 9-11, the government has repeatedly invoked the state secrets privilege to avoid accountability for some of the most egregious abuses of government power, including torture by the CIA, something called extraordinary rendition by the CIA, where individuals were kidnapped and flown to different locations to be interrogated or tortured by the CIA. The state secrets privilege has been invoked to thwart lawsuits challenging warrantless government surveillance in those two decades, and even to thwart lawsuits for racial discrimination and employment discrimination within the CIA. Maybe you can help me understand if the state secrets uh, piece is supposed to be kind of a get-out-of-jail-free card for the government that's claiming that its own crimes need to be kept secret. But in this particular case, the informant gave a deposition that's public, right? So why would this case even need state secrets to be tried? That's a great question, Amber. And you're exactly right that in this case, the informant's role has been publicly acknowledged by the government. The informant has, you know, after these the events that we talked about, came forward and acknowledged his role in attempting to gather information about these Muslim American communities. And so none of that is secret. But the government is still claiming that certain aspects of the FBI's 
operation or its efforts to investigate whatever it believed it was investigating at the time are secret. And so this was part of what the FBI called Operation Flex. And the FBI has said that certain elements of that operation remain secret to this day and that it shouldn't be required to present that information to a court, even behind closed doors. I cannot imagine how absolutely disastrous this has to be for any kind of accountability for our governments and some of the crimes that they can commit. So this is this is pretty heinous. Um, you mentioned just a moment ago the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act. So can you tell us about the intersection between protest and surveillance, particularly as it impacts communities of color? Sure, yeah. So I think it is really important to draw the connection between what these Muslim American plaintiffs are challenging in this case and the types of surveillance abuses that Congress was trying to address when it passed the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act in the 1970s. What Congress was responding to were revelations over many years about abusive surveillance of civil rights leaders like Martin Luther King, like Muhammad Ali, surveillance of student protesters who were protesting on campuses against the Vietnam War and against racism in our country, and others who were standing up for civil rights in the country and who were, because of that, because of they were exercising their First Amendment rights, were subject to really intrusive and secret surveillance by the FBI, by the CIA, by the NSA. And Congress saw how these powers could be abused when there was no oversight within the executive branch and especially coming from Congress and the judicial branch to regulate and to ensure that surveillance was not used in ways that were essentially retaliatory for people who were exercising their right to protest, to speak out about civil rights and civil liberties. And so that's part of the genesis of this law that is designed to ensure that these types of cases can go forward, that cases like Sheikh Fazaga is pursuing can be heard by the courts and can be resolved in a way that provides redress to people who have been subject to abusive surveillance. Mm -hmm. So I understand why it's incredibly important that we take this kind of case to the Supreme Court. But you know, there are people that would argue, if you didn't do anything wrong, then you have nothing to fear. So Patrick, can you tell us what's the fallacy behind this kind of logic? There's so many problems with that kind of logic. And I think some of the stories that Sheikh Fazaga and the other plaintiffs in in this case have shared really show why the nothing to hide thinking can be misguided. And that's because even if you have nothing to hide, there is still the chilling effect that comes from the feeling of being watched, of losing the security and community that one feels when you decide who's hearing your words who you allow into your private spaces or your communal spaces. And there's always the risk that the most innocent things that you say will be taken out of context or will be distorted by someone who's listening in our government. And people have suffered the consequences of those misunderstandings uh, for years. And They may have had nothing to hide at all, but because they were engaging in a political conversation that could be taken out of context, 
They were subject to more scrutiny. They were subject to being stopped at the airport, to having their bags searched, to all kinds of ways that the government can upend our lives on the basis of vague, secret claims. That's very helpful, Patrick. Beyond the kind of violation that you're talking about, the kind of violation of privacy and the kind of security we should be able to experience and kind of conversations that we have with our communities and our families, there's also this argument about effectiveness of this mass surveillance. So can you tell us, in terms of what kind of research we have on this, how effective is this kind of surveillance? People may say, you know, It's worth it if it's still effective and we're still being able to apprehend folks who would do our citizens in our country some harm. Is that what we're actually seeing? Is that this kind of surveillance is is effective in that way? There's no evidence that the kind of surveillance the plaintiffs are challenging in this case is effective. Profiling people on the basis of their religion does not provide evidence of criminal activity And in fact, it can often be counterproductive by alienating entire communities who've been profiled on the basis of their religion. And we've seen that time and again in all different ways in the national security and mass surveillance context. For years, under the Patriot Act, the government collected the phone records of virtually every American. And yet when an independent executive branch board the Privacy and Civil Liberties Oversight Board examined that program. It found that this collection of everyone's phone records had produced little unique value and that the FBI had other far more targeted and narrow tools that it could rely on to obtain the information that it genuinely needed to pursue investigations that were based on individual suspicion. That's right. So that is actually very encouraging news. If the court rules that the government has to declassify its state secrets about surveillance programs, what do you think that means for the future of surveillance in this country? Well, one of the ways in which this process works that the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act lays out and that Congress mandated when it passed that law is it strikes a balance between allowing cases to go forward and a court to really address these constitutional claims that the plaintiffs are bringing and allowing the government to protect information that it believes is genuinely sensitive. And so rather than dismissing the case as the government is seeking here, what these procedures do is say, the attorney general has made a claim that this information is highly sensitive and if disclosed to the public, could cause harm to national security. So the way that it will be handled in court is that the judge will review it in chambers by themselves. And that puts plaintiffs in cases like these at a disadvantage. The default rule, the norm in these cases, is that both parties see the evidence and can make arguments about who's right and who's wrong. And in this special set of procedures, only the judge sees that evidence and the government is providing it in this one-sided way. So there is a cost to plaintiffs of these procedures. But the important thing and the key takeaway here is that the case can go forward, that the judge has an opportunity to look at that evidence and to look at it alongside all the public evidence that the plaintiffs are going to put forward and can rule on the kind of the core issues in the case, what we call the merits of the case, after looking at all that evidence. 
Can you tell us what it would look like if the court rules against Fasaga? What would that mean for kind of the future of surveillance in the country? If the court rules against the plaintiffs in this case, that could have serious consequences for the ability of people challenging surveillance, but also all these other kinds of government misconduct and abuses that we've talked about to seek and obtain remedies in court, to go to court and to say, I've been wronged, I've been harmed by the government. The government has violated, you know, a whole host of different constitutional rights. It's discriminated against me on the basis of my religion. It singled me out because of my race or national origin. It has committed torture. It could make it much harder for people to get through the courthouse doors and to seek the types of remedies for those very serious violations of our rights in the future. Sheikh Fasaga paints perhaps an even more dire picture. He believes that this case represents an attempt to maintain a healthy democracy. Those of us who came from dictatorships, this is how it all begins. You know, the idea of instilling fear, this is about the national security, and that is used as a way of silencing citizens. We can't really tell you, but it's for the greater good of the community. And the minute you do that, everything is done so much in the dark It sounds like as if the government is saying, trust us, we're doing this for your own good. And that is all that is being presented to the citizens at this point. I think it's very irresponsible. I think that, you know, the checks and the balances is what makes this democracy what it is. And if you give that away, then how are you monitoring? Because it can, you know, absolute power absolutely corrupts. And this is what we're seeing, the idea of, granting people that type of power without having anybody to check on them. Look, it's happening to the Muslims today. What happens if somebody deems the Quakers to be that? Maybe then it's the evangelicals. Maybe then it's the Orthodox. And then maybe it is, there is no end to it. Once you allow it to happen against any group of people, by default, you are saying it can also happen to all other people, allowing this practice without really curbing the ability of the government to wrong its own citizens is not just a threat to the Muslim community, it is a threat to democracy. Thanks so much to Sheikh Fasaga and Patrick Toomey for joining us. And thanks so much to you for listening. If you enjoyed this conversation, please be sure to subscribe to At Liberty wherever you get your podcasts and rate and review the show. We really appreciate the feedback. Until next week, keep fighting. We haven't come this far to only come this far.